1: But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. That's Jeremiah 1120. And with that verse, I welcome you to this edition of Truth and Liberty. Uh, We've got a great show, folks. Alex McFarland here, and I'm so honored that you're watching. I'm I'm excited not only for the topic that we have, but for also a very special guest from Answers in Genesis. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we had the privilege of having Ken ham on the program and we love AIG and it's gonna be a great show plus we're gonna take your calls and questions and that's gonna make it a extra extra special show the number I'm gonna give you the number if you want to call in with a question for Brian Osborne and myself here in a few minutes but that number is 719-619-2341 719-619-2341 now you may also Need prayer. If you have a need for prayer and you just want to talk to somebody and get God's word, God's answer for your need. I want to give that number right off the bat. That number for prayer, not to not to go on the air, but just to talk to somebody, is seven one nine six three five eleven eleven. Seven one nine six three five eleven eleven. Now I want to welcome our guest in just a moment, but I want to say it sure is good to be back. I've been off for about a week because i was traveling now earlier this week i was in lynchburg virginia at liberty university and i was there at liberty christian academy k-12 through speaking to the students about biblical worldview it was wonderful wednesday night i was at thomas road baptist church which is the church that birthed liberty university And I've got to say, the beehive of activity that is liberty these days kind of reminds me of Karis Bible College because up in Woodland Park, Colorado, we've been for just years now. I've had the honor of teaching there about seven or eight years, and we are watching God raise up. At Caris, just an amazing world-class Christian institution. Maybe you want to be a part of that, and later on we'll talk about Caris. But I thank God for helping me travel, speak to these young people. We saw several dozen young people this week pray to accept Christ and be born again. They put their faith in Jesus. They had a lot of questions, and some of the youth questions I'm going to discuss with our guest in a moment, but I've got to tell you this, folks. A week ago this time, Richard Harris and I were in Washington, D.C. Now, there was a big conference called Pray, Vote, Stand. It was put on by our friends at the Family Research Council, FRC, Tony Perkins. And uh, folks, it was exciting. For one thing, Richard Harris and I got to do a seminar on how can the church impact the culture, It was awesome, and I mean, the place was packed, and maybe we'll put some photos up. But on Friday night, a week ago today, they had a great session, a lot of worship music. There was um, Jack Hibbs. Jack Hibbs out in California, very famously, he was a pastor, and they didn't close up shop during COVID, and he gave an incredibly stirring message. And Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, spoke. He's a presidential candidate. That was strong. Was powerful, and then Vivek Ramaswamy spoke, and that was strong. We heard him uh, speak, and then they took an intermission. Now, folks, listen to this. And I, look, I'm not saying where you should be politically. I'm just telling you, Richard Harris and I last week we were at the Pray, Vote, Stand summit, and um, I've been to a few speeches in my day, and I've been to a lot of concerts. But I've never heard applause like I heard when Donald Trump came out to speak. He took the stage probably about 9.30 or 9.40, spoke for a little over an hour. But I want to tell you, if just imagine having your head up in a jet engine. That's about how loud it was, the applause when he came out. And he talked about putting the justices on the court that helped overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. He talked about putting the embassy back in Jerusalem, which... He did, though we had promised it for almost 50 years. He talked about securing the border. He talked about the economy growing. He talked about record employment levels. Inflation was down. Interest rates were down. Prosperity was up. It was amazing. Now, why am I telling you all that? For one thing, I give God the glory. I think uh, Richard Harris would agree we had an amazing time in our nation's capital. It was disheartening to see Tents and homeless encampments right there on the grounds of the Capitol. Um, That's something I'm not used to seeing, but I'm seeing that in Seattle, Portland, Chicago, Atlanta, just in the last really year, year and a half, two years. I mean, green space, green space where there were parks and beautiful shrubberies and trees are now look like homeless encampments. And I'm seeing what reminds me of the developing indigent nations when I go to third world countries here in the USA. It's very disheartening. We need to get back to the point of law, moral truth. We need to get back to a biblical worldview. We could talk more about that, but I'm going to give this number again, 719-619-2341. We'll go to questions in just a moment. But right now, I want to bring my guest up. And his name is Brian Osborne. And uh, Brian is an author. He's an educator. He's been a teacher in the public schools. And now he's working for just one of my favorite ministries anywhere, Answers in Genesis. We love Ken Ham. We love all that AIG stands for. But Brian Osborne, uh, welcome. Thanks for being with us tonight on this very special edition of Truth and Liberty.
2: Alex, it is my privilege to be here with you. And uh, to be talking about biblical truth and how we can really give a defense, proclaim the good news of Christ to the world around us.
1: Amen. Yeah, I think you and I, in addition to the Lord, biblical worldview, having that in common, I think you and I also are from North Carolina. Is that right?
2: (laughs) That's absolutely correct. Yeah. I was born in High Point and I was raised in the Thomasville area and my parents still live close to Thomasville in between Thomasville and Lexington still visit there quite often and uh I still definitely home in a lot of ways and I grew up a Tar Heel fan so I don't know where that puts me and you but yeah. <laughs> very good yeah I spoke at a church over close to Duke uh, a few years back and made a couple of jokes and the Duke fans weren't happy about it so I had to repent of that but uh the uh no but definitely like North Carolinian through and through
1: Amen, amen. Well, you know, myself as well, I was um, going to college at University of North Carolina at Greensboro, UNCG, when I gave my life to the the Lord. I was 21, and um, this was back in the late 80s, and I discovered apologetics. And, you know, not everybody knows about apologetics now, but... Let me tell you, 35 years ago, it was really, really kind of unheard of. I've got mm-hmm. to ask you this. Um, how did you get into apologetics and biblical worldview and the, the content that you and I are both dedicated to? But how did you discover it, Brian?
2: That's a great question because I have a similar kind of past that you were describing in that I really didn't have training in the home or the church growing up in apologetics. Now I grew up in a great Christian family. My parents are strong believers I went to good churches growing up, but there still wasn't really that emphasis on defending the faith. By the way, just for the listeners, the word apologetics doesn't mean to apologize for your faith, but it means to give a defense for your faith, to give an answer for the faith that you have. And so uh, I I did not have that training, and then I went to a Bible college, one called Bryan College over in Dane, Tennessee. And that college was really focused on a biblical worldview, especially at the time, and uh, gave me a really good foundation in that. But it was not really until after college where really God directed my steps and he led me to become a Bible history teacher in a public school where I began teaching that biblical history to these students at a high school level. And they were kind of asking me all these questions. And basically the rule rule was that I could not give the students my opinion. I could only tell them what the Bible said, which by the way, that's what apologetics is, right? It's yeah. telling people what the Bible says on any given issue. So it really trained me to think biblically to answer these questions in a real-world way. and really began to recognize some common trends and the questions they were asking. And how uh, many of these questions were causing so many to doubt biblical authority and biblical truth and reject the gospel or causing Christians to stumble and have a weak faith. And so I really began to see that need for the church itself and Christians to have these apologetics to defend the faith. And I tell people all the time, when you do apologetics, the point is not simply to win a debate about any given issue. The point is defending biblical authority so we can proclaim the gospel effectively. And that's really our heartbeat in this.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, you go into Bryan College, and I, it was my privilege to speak there. Um, did, did you ever, in any of your uh, classes, uh, hear Dr. Jeff Myers, who's now with Summit Ministries in Colorado?
2: <laughs> he was one of my professors for a little bit. Absolutely, yeah and communications yeah. and different things. Yep. Well, he was did fantastic ever, he did a wonderful job.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, folks, listen to this, because uh, Brian College is in Dayton, Tennessee. Did you ever go down to, uh, if I recall, it's the Shelby County Courthouse, Dayton, mm-hmm. Tennessee, where the Scopes trial had taken place?
2: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, of course, as you might imagine, as a college student, we kind of traversed the whole landscape of Dayton because there's not much to it. So we went around a lot of different areas in Dayton and really got familiar with some of those things. And then, of course, there's a reenactment of the Scopes Monkey Trial. And one of my professors, uh, Dr. Legg, was part of that. He was actually William Jennings Bryan for many years in that. And One of my oh, well. favorite professors at Bryan College. And so yeah, we got a pretty good education in that history. And, and interestingly enough, it wasn't until after Brian College that I became really passionate about apologetics, in particular creation apologetics, and really saw the relevance of all that.
1: Yeah. You, you know, uh, I've got to tell you this, Brian, it's fascinating to speak with you because, you know, you're, you're one of the few people that I know that would know the story of the Scopes trial and all that. <laughs> sure. But um, I, I was speaking at Brian College. This is probably 10 years ago. And I had interviewed 32 of the world's top atheists and it was going to be one book, but it mm-hmm. became two books. And I they dropped me off in downtown Dayton to wait for a ride to take me to the airport up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So I had like two hours, really, by myself. Yeah. And I, you know, I had not put two and two together. And I go in this building, and I realize, oh my goodness, this is the, the Dayton courthouse <laughs> where the Scott trial took yeah. place. And this dear lady, she showed me around, gave me a tour. And at that point, it was still a functioning courtroom. Maybe it still is. I sat in the courtroom. Literally, I mean, it's the same chair, same furniture. Uh, By myself, she said, "Well, just you're welcome." It was a a very hot day. She said, "You're welcome to sit here in the courtroom, work on your computer, you know, just um, use the building as you need, and and I'll let you know when your ride gets here to take you to the airport." And I literally finished, it was kind of surreal, wrote the last chapter of my book on skepticism and atheism sitting in the Scopes courtroom. Where And (laughs) and, now I want to talk about this. And folks, let me give this number (laughs) uh, a rare opportunity. I know. Tonight, if you've got a question, could be about creation versus evolution. Could be about what is a biblical worldview. Could be a Bible question, a history question. Brian Osborne and I will do our very best to give you a factual answer. The number, write it down because we're going to go to calls in a few moments, but it's 719 619 2341. But let, let's just talk about creation versus evolution. And I, I do want to circle back to Scopes, and Clarence Darrow versus William Jennings Bryan. But, um, Brian, why is this issue so um, significant? Creation versus evolution, why is that such a big, looming issue?
2: Uh, Two words, biblical authority, and everything related to that. And, And really, let me just say to those who are listening that uh, I didn't catch the relevance of this until I was well out of college and really God just opened my eyes in some unique circumstances to why this matters so much. Because I, like many other Christians, thought, well, maybe God used evolution, Big Bang, millions of years. It doesn't matter. Just trust in Jesus. Just preach the gospel. That's really all that matters. And, of course, the gospel is the focus. But what we got to realize is the gospel we have, the gospel message comes from a source. What source? Or well, the Word of God. And here's the bottom line, if you cannot trust the Bible's clear teaching at the beginning of the book, why trust the middle or the end? If the Bible gets history wrong, right? Fundamental history wrong, if it gets that wrong, why trust it about morality, sexuality, gender, or salvation? And so fundamentally, it's an issue of authority. And when you look at the biblical account of creation, the clear historical narrative in Genesis 1 to 11, echoed as real history throughout the rest of scripture and by Jesus himself, It's in clear contradiction to the secular evolutionary narrative that is so different by leaps and bounds. It's a polar opposite worldview on so many different levels. And bottom line is that if evolution is true, if millions of years is true, well, then the Bible's history is false. And if the Bible's history is false, why trust it anywhere else? And so fundamentally, it's a biblical authority issue. And then also in Genesis 1 to 11, you have the foundational history that is the foundation to every single biblical doctrine, either directly or indirectly, including the biblical doctrines we need to refute the secular ideologies of this age. And so, I mean, Alex, if you think about it, if we want to give a biblical response about gender, sexuality, marriage, sanctity of life, where do you fundamentally go? Well, back to Genesis 1 to 11, where he made them male and female. We see the first marriage. He made us in his image. Therefore, life has, is to be sanctified from the beginning from fertilization. And so even with the social issues of this age, biblically speaking, we got to go back to the beginning to give a good, sound, biblical answer. And so that's why, in short, it matters so much, biblical
1: authority and really the biblical worldview that comes out of that biblical authority starting from the beginning of the book. Amen. And, and you know, uh, Brian, if God... Can't be trusted about our past. How do we trust what God's word says about our future? You know, that's right. If if God really wasn't a part of our origin, how do we know that God is part of our destiny? Um, you know, the the pastor that led me to the Lord when I was twenty one. It didn't take me long as a twenty one year old college student to wonder what happened to the dinosaurs. And so one time I went to see my pastor, and look, this was. 35 years ago, and I'm sure he, based on what he told me, he probably didn't have any exposure to apologetics. But he said to me when I had questions, he said, well, look, God created, but evolution was the tool he used. And somehow I knew that, wa- that couldn't be right. That couldn't right. be right. Um, and there were a number of big things that caused me, and I was very respectful to his face, but in my own heart, I thought, I've got to find the answer. And I, and I really right. did. But I categorically reject that God used evolution to do anything. I, I don't believe in Darwinian evolution. But Brian, if you would, why, why is that such a problematic position that a lot of Christians seem to have? Why is that position wrong?
2: Well, what a lot of people don't really understand is that evolution in millions of years is really man's attempt to explain life in our origin without God. Uh, yeah. The Big Bang evolutionary ideology, that's really man saying, okay, how can I try to explain all the world around me with only natural processes so that I can just get God out of the equation? So really, it's a naturalistic, materialistic, uh, atheistic way to try to explain life without God. And so Understand at a foundational level, these two ideas are butting heads, right? And then, really, when you look at the actual outworkings of what evolution says and compares it to the Bible, that could not be more different. The Bible is clear that God created supernaturally by the power of his word, he spoke the universe into existence. Why? Because he's God. He created over, over a six-day period through that supernatural power of him speaking. And on the seventh day, he rested. In Exodus 20, 11, for in six days, he made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and then rested on the seventh day. And so, and it says that he made, you know, animals distinct from humanity. He made the water creatures on this day. He made the sun and moon stars on this day, and so forth and so on. It's very uh Focused, It's very deliberate in its language, and really, if you look at the Hebrew, or the original language of Genesis, it is clearly historical narrative, not poetical, not symbolic, it's not even close. It's actually the most historical language in the entire Old Testament on a certain level. So it really is very, very clear. Evolution says no, essentially, no God, and it's really time, chance, and matter over long periods of time that somehow organized all that we see today, which by the way, mm-hmm. goes against multiple laws of science like law of biogenesis and first and second law of thermodynamics and stuff like that. But it also says that we came into existence as humans over a long process of millions of years of death and suffering and bloodshed and disease leading up to mankind where the Bible says God made the world perfect and man's sin brought death, the enemy into God's creation, which by the way, Alex, is one of the big re- reasons you cannot consistently try to squeeze the secular idea of millions of years into the Bible. If you yeah. do, inevitably you'll put death before sin because evolution says there was millions of years of death that led to man. The Bible says, no, God made the world perfect. It's man's sin that brought death, the enemy, into God's perfect creation. And by the way, when Christ returns, that enemy death will be conquered. There'll be death no more, return to that original perfect state because it was perfect to begin with. And evolution dismantles and dismisses all of that.
1: And, and, you know, the, the Bible does call death the enemy, right? That's going to be abolished. Well, in an evolutionary paradigm, death was this avenue by which more and more life happened, more and more death. I remember as a kid, and I I didn't know anything about anything, but I thought, wait a minute, there was no death before the fall of Genesis 3. Folks, don't miss this point. I'm going to give Brian Osborne a chance to elaborate. One of the reasons, and there are many we could give, that as a Christian, as I believe the Bible, we categorically cannot believe in evolution because there would have been death before the fall. And we know that, uh, if you're gonna believe the Bible, that Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, they disobeyed God, sin was entered into the equation, Uh, Physical death was a consequence of the fall, not a precursor prior to the fall, was it, Brian?
2: You're exactly right. And really, if you follow this out logically and theologically, watch this. If you got millions of years, you got death before sin. If there was death before sin, that would mean death is not the consequence or the payment for sin. just always been around. And watch this: If death is not the payment for sin, then Jesus's death cannot and does not pay our sin debt, and we just undermine wow. Christ's atoning work on the cross, whether we meant to or not, even with the best of intentions, like I had many years ago. And so, we would say, at a fundamental level, that's why it matters so much theologically, because ultimately, what this stuff leads to is an attack on biblical authority and ultimately on the gospel itself, and that's why we care so much. Alex, I tell people all the time, my passion ultimately is not radiometric dating, arguments for the age of the earth or dinosaurs. We get answers to all those things. But my passion is biblical authority and the gospel rooted in that authority. That's really what's going on here.
1: Amen. You know, uh, I spoke at Liberty this week. I, I talked about three crises of our time and a fourth crisis. We're living in a crisis of truth, a crisis of identity, uh, a crisis really of, of meaning, but also a crisis regarding our future. And, and here's the point, folks. Mm-hmm. Our identity, humans made in God's image, I've got a twofold question for you, Brian. If, if evolution were true, um, one, a, at what point did the primates become fully human being? I mean, where, where's the line of demarcation between primates uh, you know, the highest living land mammals and, and actual human beings in whom is, is the breath of God. You know, I mean, that's very fuzzy. The other thing that I would say, and if you would speak to this, um, look, I, I know there, there are well-meaning, but I think misguided Christians, that they, they want Jesus, but not really the Bible's creation story. But here's the thing. Show me somebody who believes in some form of evolution. And even if they claim to be a Christian, very, very often they doubt the literal existence of Adam and Eve. Am am I right, Mm -hmm. Brian?
2: Yeah. Well, because it comes highly in the question, if you're trying to embrace evolutionary ideology, who were Adam and Eve? Were they real people? Were they a group of people? Is it all symbolic or poetical? Yeah, you get all sorts of problems if you reject the clear teaching of the text.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, so a theistic evolutionist. Uh, for, first of all, what does that term mean, Brian? If, if we hear the term theistic evolution, what, what is that?
2: So that would be someone who believes in a, a a god. There's a god out there. Maybe the biblical god. Someone you can have, actually have Islamic theistic evolutionists, or you can have Hindu theistic evolutionists. But they believe in a God or multiple gods, but at least a god, and God used evolution. So within the Christian. Uh, perspective, it would be a believer who thinks God used evolution, which mm. uh, I used to be in that camp a long time ago until God got a hold of me on this. Uh, but they would argue, and it seems to make sense to us right off the cuff, when you first really engage this issue and you think, well, science says this, and the Bible says this, so let's just put them together. Surely God just used evolution. And so that's theistic evolutionist. What people don't understand though, is science doesn't speak, scientists speak as they interpret things through their worldview. And when you're trying to make a guess about the past, you interpret present-day observations through your assumptions about the past. And everyone's got assumptions based on a different worldview. And bottom line, Alex, either God's word is your authority on any issue or man's word is. And when you reject God's word and you embrace man's ideas, interpret things through that particular lens of man's ideas, you'll get wrong conclusions because your foundational assumptions are wrong, which is why the secular scientists are so wrong about age of the earth and dinosaurs and so forth. So as Christians, mm-hmm. it's paramount that we start with a biblical foundation, with a biblical lens, and see the world through that biblical lens, interpret things through that grid, and then we'll have the right foundation to give us the right answers to engage your culture with.
1: Folks, if you're just tuning in, Brian Osborne of Answers in Genesis is with us. He's got a new book out I want you to be aware of. But the number, if you've got a Bible question, tonight's the night, especially a question about creation or evolution or how to talk about these things. What is a biblical worldview? Okay, here's the number, 719 619 2341 if you want to call in with your question we'll get to the phone lines in just a moment 719 619 2341 if you've maybe you're gonna be a first-time caller tonight's a great night uh, to call in and we would love to hear from you before the first break Brian uh, here here's my question um, if 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 we can't really trust what the Bible says about our origins and Genesis. I mean, by, by what consistent standard do we trust other parts of the Bible? I mean, if we're going to toss out Genesis, then what, do we have a legitimate basis for accepting Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John?
2: And the key word there is consistent. What consistent basis do we have? Now, many Christians like myself for the longest time will be inconsistent, We'll take the plain reading of scripture in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Christ and his his divine life and his perfect life without sin, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection. We'll we'll take that as literal history as it's written, but then we'll reject the clear history in Genesis chapters 1 to 11 with an inconsistent hermeneutic, which is interpreting the Bible inconsistently in different places. And so we cannot do that consistently. And by the way, the biblical authors don't do that. The biblical authors all refer to Genesis 1 to 11 as clear, literal history. Jesus, when he responded, the pharisees he said talking about marriage have you not read that he who made them at the beginning of creation talking about adam and Eve, made at the beginning of creation made them male and female over and over again jesus refers to genesis 1 to 11 as clear straightforward regular history so does paul so does every biblical author and so if we're going to take the bible in its clear sense in one place, we should do it in other places as well. And by the way, just really quick, Alex. A lot of people think, well, they'll say they'll accuse us. Well, you just mean you would interpret the Bible over literally. No, 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 no. We interpret the Bible naturally within a given context. So, if something's written historical language, we interpret it as as history. If it's a poetical book like Psalms or Proverbs, we interpret it as far we interpret it really. We understand it's a poetical. Uh, language there we interpret with a political lens. And so you interpret it within the natural genre that you're looking at. Revelation, different genre, the literal history, plain history. And so you read it, you read the text in its context. And when you do that, the context will make sense. And it really kind of gives a clear understanding of what we're looking at and gives answers we need to defend our faith.
1: Folks, here are two words. Now, listen up as we get ready for our first break. Cosmology, soteriology. You're saying, what in the world do these words mean, Alex? Okay, what is the overlap between creation and salvation? They really do overlap. They very much inform each other. Now, this and much more on this very special edition of Truth and Liberty, our, our special guest, Brian Osborne. Your calls, 719 619 2341. Stay tuned. We're back after this.
3: With practical government, you have experts in the fields that are sharing their perspective, wisdom, and experience. It's not available anywhere else in the world. We teach biblical
4: worldview. We're going to teach a Christian heritage of our American government. They're going to learn about the founding fathers. We're teaching the Constitution, how government operates, practical skills, and field study.
0: There's no better place on earth to get equipped than Keras. You know, God's not done with us. He's not done with America, and he's not done with you.
4: So many people come into Practical Government School and they're scared because it's the mountain of government. But you know what? They come out so strong, and that is so amazing.
2: No matter where you're coming from, the world needs you.
0: Whatever God's calling you to
1: do, you're able to do it.
2: To learn more, visit practicalgovernmentschool.com.
1: Welcome back to the program. Alex McFarland here. So honored you're watching on this Friday edition of Truth and Liberty. Hey, I hope you're going to be in church on Sunday. Uh, The weekend's coming up. Plan on being in the house of God on Sunday, and I hope you're going to somewhere where the the Word of God is the authority and Jesus is preached. And uh, you can be in church Sunday and bring somebody under the sound of the gospel. What a good thing to do. Well, we've got a very special guest who's committed his life to bringing people under the truth of the gospel. His name is Brian Osborne. And I see the calls, folks, we are going to get to you, so hang tight. But Brian, tell us about your book, the title, and where people can find it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I've got two books called Quick Answers to Tough Questions. And then quick answers to social issues. And so as a ministry here at Answers in Genesis, we got a lot of resources. And I really encourage the viewers, if you've not yet been to Northern Kentucky to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter, I know I'm biased. I work here. But come on. It, it really is incredible. It, it's world class. It's so well done. You'll be so encouraged and challenged and edified. It's such a great place to come and bring your family. We suggest a lot better than Disney for so many reasons, all right? But, yeah. uh and so but we got a lot of resources and, and many of those resources give you really good long in-depth answers on dinosaurs in the bible age of the earth carbon 14 dating who did Cain mary and all those sorts of things and so what i wanted to do was give people a quick concise add friendly version of those answers and so in this book each answer is less than 500 words to 33 different questions on science and the bible and the first book on quick answers to tough questions and then the second book on the social issues I really just born out of looking around the culture seeing all of these social issues that are just on fire in our culture today about issues of life equality sexuality and environment and knowing that the church needs answers to those particular things so giving short concise biblical answers to those issues as well 37 answers in that book and so you find those at mm-hmm. answers and go to amazon find them there as well or come on to the creation museum and the ark encounter and uh buy one while you're in the bookstore But uh, pretty pretty much anywhere online, you can buy books. You might be able to find a copy somewhere. But the goal was to give quick, concise answers because I understand for most of us, we're super busy. You can read these books in just a few hours and get over 30 answers per topic and hopefully be equipped and revisit them when you need to and be a great resource.
1: Well, and let me concur, folks. I've been to the Creation Museum uh, half a dozen times. I've been to the Ark three times. Uh, don't miss it. You will not be disappointed. Okay, we're going to pick up the phone. We're going to start in Colorado, the home of Charis and Andrew (laughs) Womack Ministries and Truth and Liberty. Uh, Lori in Colorado, welcome to this edition of Truth and Liberty.
3: Thank you so much, Alex. I truly appreciate you taking my call, and uh, good afternoon to you as well, Brian. I love your work with Answers in Genesis. We're
2: good. Praise God.
3: So my question for you today is, um, I serve on a planning commission here in our town. And we had a meeting on September 11th, which obviously was the anniversary of uh, you know, Patriot's Day, the anniversary of the destruction of the Twin Towers and the assault on America. And at that meeting, mm-hmm. I took advantage of that to a point. And was the first time that I did a uh, public prayer at the beginning. I had called the meeting to order, and, and did a prayer. Um, mm-hmm. Asked uh, those who wanted to, to to stand with me, and uh, said a prayer, and then also followed by a moment of silence, and then we did our pledge mm-hmm. of allegiance and went into the meeting. I am mm-hmm. starting to receive pushback because I did pray in the name of Jesus. And Uh I know, having watched the Truth and Liberty conference, or much of it, I didn't watch the whole thing, but watched a lot of it, and I truly appreciate uh, that weekend. It was just wonderful. And I know that we need to start taking a stand, uh, especially, uh, I know David Barton was talking about the overturning of the Lemon Law and i guess i'm looking for some advice and direction um i definitely want to make a stand for jesus here in our community and uh, Mm -hmm. for christians here in our community so i'm looking forward to what you have to say on uh, making a stand and uh, other resources maybe i can get uh in helping me accomplish this i guess uh looking for other advice as well so Um,
1: thank you let me jump Let me jump in on this, and Lori, God bless you for praying and God bless you for exercising your First Amendment free speech right, which recently the Supreme Court has reaffirmed. There was a a decision in Kennedy versus Bremerton that reaffirmed a high school coach's right to pray at a a high school football game. Uh, So God bless you for exercising your rights and being courageous. Let me just say this for a little bit, and uh, and Brian Osborne, you can weigh in, but you are absolutely on solid legal footing when you pray at a public school function or a public meeting of city government or state government. Because, you know, for one thing, for two centuries, uh, our Congress has opened with prayer. Our Prayer has been a part of our uh you know, government and national landscape from the very beginning. Now it's interesting in 1962, listen carefully to this folks, there was a a court decision called Engel versus Vital that said a school could not force a student to pray. And now a lot of people ran with that and said, oh, uh, prayer has been banned from public schooling. But I wanna say this, First of all, um, people now for decades have recognized the, the uh, absolute empty basis for Engel versus Vital being used to kick prayer out of schools. But here's the thing. If somebody gave you pushback, Lori, about you prayed, uh, there, there's no legal nor constitutional reason why prayer shouldn't open up a public gathering. city council and in no way does it violate the first amendment's non-establishment clause let me just say this just as the school can't force a student to pray or force a student to pray a certain way uh, engel versus vital could not be used to force you to not pray a certain way you prayed your personal Closely held conviction is to pray in Jesus' name. You're on solid legal ground to do that. Now, where the rights of citizens like you get undermined is when nervous nelly, uh, school superintendent, scaredy cats, they obstruct the rights of Christians because they're just very terrified that the ACLU or some vacuous, baseless group will rattle their uh, PR saber. And threaten you know listen I've had Christian clubs kicked out of public schools I'm I'm right near uh, in Randolph County the school superintendent down there who's you know a big high-profile Christian at a Baptist church he will not let child evangelism fellowship in the public school because on the one hand he affirms Christianity but on the other hand rather than defend the rights of ninety-nine point nine percent of his students he just doesn't let Christian groups into the schools in his district. It's very sad. So what we're going to have to do mm-hmm. is respectfully but consistently uh, stand up for our rights. Principals, uh, city councilmen, public school administrators, gatekeepers of every strata, you, just because you don't believe in the rights of God-fearing Americans, it doesn't mean that you have the right to prevent Christians, or people of any faith group from exercising their constitutionally protected First Amendment right of religious expression. Anyway, Brian Osborne, what, what do you say?
2: First, Lori, I mean, way to stand up and, and way to be salt and light in our culture. And uh, we praise God for what you are doing there and what, the chance you had, the opportunity you had. And we would pray for more. And I uh, thank you for your encouraging words earlier as well and i would just say this along with what alex is already saying is that as you engage in this understand people will try to tell you our culture tries to tell you well you should not have these particular views you shouldn't pray in jesus name you shouldn't view gender in this way because you need to be neutral and the thing is that's not possible there is no such thing as neutrality on any issue either god's word is your authority or man's word is either you're putting your faith in one you're putting faith in the other And we tell people all the time here at the ministry, everybody has faith. The question is, where are you putting your faith? So those who are actually trying to confront you and put you down for what you did, they're not actually calling you to be neutral. They're actually asking you to embrace their faith, their religiously held views, which is very religious of them and is not neutral. And so you need to understand that so we can engage them and say, hey, listen, I base my thinking on God's word. I build my thinking from that particular foundation you have a faith as well you're putting your faith in these ideas it's a religious faith as well because you hold many of these ideas just by uh by religious conviction and so i'm going to put my faith here don't push your religious views on me and let me hold to my faith and build my thinking from there and proclaim those things within the rights given in our in the in, in the land we live in today and so mm. i would just encourage you to understand that and share that with people and challenge them with this that there is no neutral they're not neutral And they shouldn't try to ask you to be because you can't be either. We stand on God's word. They're standing on different foundation.
1: Wow. What a great question. Thank you, Lori. We're going to go to Missouri. Uh, Frank in Missouri, thanks for holding. And you're on Truth and Liberty. Welcome, Frank.
4: Thanks, Alec, and Brother. uh, um, I'm here and I'm listening. And I heard you mention the word, so curious. So soteriologically uh, uh, fill in the blank here uh, is uh, uh, does, uh, these three things uh, 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 soteriologically uh, sound thinking here that that he's a creator redeemer sustainer is there anything more to soteriology that, that, than that really, my question my question is about the simplicity of sometimes that people. Uh, you know Jesus loves me this I know for the bible tells me so that's the greatest stuff uh, yeah the greatest stuff
1: uh, well uh, l- let me jump in here for just a second by the way soteriology is from the Greek word soterios which means to save and f- so folks when we're talking about Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross his blood was shed to wash our sin away salvation these are issues that fall under the broad heading of soteriology. You, you know, the Bible says that not only did Christ pay our sin and rise from the dead, but he's, he's coming again to restore all things. And, and Brian, I would say that soteriology involves creator, redeemer, sustainer, as Frank said. I would say it also involves sovereignty, that Jesus mm. is coming back to restore all things. And He is the sovereign Lord. And, you know, we can depend on that. And there is a better day coming when, uh, you know, the one who says, behold, I make all things new. Um, The sovereignty of Jesus, that's a part of the salvation message too, isn't it, Brian? Well,
2: absolutely it is. God as sovereign, as sovereign creator and redeemer and sustainer. And the one who will consummate all of time and history for his purpose and his glory. No doubt about that. And I would simply add to what you guys are already saying, and that is we have, yes, he is the creator. We also don't miss this. Within salvation, there's the historical fact of the corruption where man sin bringing death and suffering into this world. That's why we need a redeemer to begin with. So it was a perfect creation man sin bringing death and suffering into this world we see the consequences of that in the flood tower of Babel. then we see god becomes flesh christ is born and he lives the perfect life we could not live he died on the cross in our place he paid that perfect infinite debt we could not pay as the perfect god man and then he rose from the great defeating death that we might be saved if we put our faith in him and him alone and one day he's coming back all that comes together as one big meta-narrative of all of history. But that history starts in Genesis. doesn't start in the book of Matthew. Yeah, And so we like to say here in the ministry that the gospel um, requires both atoms, the first and the last, the first one tells us where we came from. By the way, like you talked about earlier, our identity. We are made in God's image. Found in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we are made in God's image. That's why we have value as human beings. And so we understand there's something fundamentally valuable valuable about every single person, because we're made in God's image. But we know we're broken, too. Why are we broken? Well, Genesis chapter 3, man sinned. And that sin is spread to all of mankind. We're broken by sin. We need a Savior. We can't do it. That's why Christ says, done what he has done for his glory and our good. And so mm. that message of salvation through Christ starts over back in the history in the book of Genesis and why was so passionate about it.
1: Yeah, indeed. Frank, great question. Thank you for listening, Frank. And by the way, folks, you can go to truthandliberty.net slash subscribe. We've got articles. We've got content that's growing all the time. We'll keep you informed about the program and upcoming very special guests like Brian Osborne. Go to truthandliberty.net slash subscribe right now Rocco in New Jersey Rocco thanks for holding you the next caller on this edition of truth and Liberty
4: Hey, Alex, how are you
1: good thanks for listening
4: hey so my question is how can we defend a biblical literal Adam and Eve so I'm a college student and I have a physics cool. teacher and he's actually Jewish um mm-hmm. he's actually canceling class this Monday but he's mentioned before that Genesis 1 through 11 is just allegorical, and I guess to him in his mind that just the science, the physics, whatever, the Big Bang, is just incompatible with him and his framework. So how can we defend mm. the biblical interpretation Genesis 1 through 11?
1: Wow. Uh, that is a great question. Hang on, Rocco. Um, Brian, doesn't uh, genetics and and Several branches of science these days, Brian, believe that the human race as we know it came from a single male-female pair.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, if you look at the most recent finds in genetics, it really is amazing how science will catch up to that real biblical history starting in Genesis. But you can actually trace uh, all women today back to one mitochondrial Eve. You can trace all men today through the Y chromosome to one man representing all of mankind today from whom we all descend later on. And in particular, with the mitochondrial Eve, if you assume the radical assumptions that humans are only related to humans in an average mutational rate, this mitochondrial Eve, who's the, actually the descendant for all women today, or the, the first one, the first ancestor of all women, the, all, all women living today, if you go back to that, assuming just that we're all related to each other, this mitochondrial Eve lived roughly 6,000 years ago. And then if you look really? at other genetic finds, it looks like um, roughly 5,000 years ago, there was rapid genetic diversity within the human population. Roughly 5,000 years ago would be the Tower of Babel. And so we can look at those sorts of things, and we can see how real science and real genetics will really confirm the Bible in a powerful way. And actually, if you're interested, Rocco, which, by the way, I love the name, uh, but if you're interested, you can actually find a book called Trace by Dr. Nathaniel Jensen. A Harvard grad works here at Answers and Genesis, an incredible book showing how really genetics and the actual observations and the mutational rates traced back in time confirms a young earth and a recent uh, origin for mankind, which would be just thousands of years ago. And let me just say this, though, with your professor. Uh, Oftentimes, it's not uncommon that some of those within uh, within a Jewish lineage or heritage would have that view that Genesis is they would say allegorical or just poetical. But I would push back on that and say the language itself does not allow for that. If you look at the actual language of Genesis chapters one to eleven, you would never get allegory or poetry. It's clear history. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then again, as I mentioned earlier, every biblical author and Jesus himself. Always refers to Genesis 1 to 11 as clear, literal history. Adam and Eve as real people, every single time. You will not get allegory or poetry from the text. That's an idea imposed on the text to try to make the idea comport with secular interpretations of present day observations. And that's something I would really encourage you to really kind of flesh out and get a hold of. And that is when you talk about origins. Since we weren't there as people, what do we do? How do we figure out what happened in the past? So you got a couple of options. When you're talking about history, either you've got a trustworthy eyewitness account who can tell you what happened to make all the present-day evidence make sense and to give you the right understanding of that unseen history from your perspective, or you, if you don't have an eyewitness account, what do you do? You look at present-day observations. You make guesses about the past to try to reach the conclusion you think might be true about history. Here's the key. If you start with the wrong assumptions, especially about unseen history, you'll likely get the wrong conclusions. Think about any CSI show, any criminal show where you know a crime scene, they come on the crime scene and all the evidence seems to point to this one particular guy. And so the whole show, you think he's guilty. He's the one, he's the one. At the end of the show, what inevitably happens, or there's an eyewitness or a piece of evidence you didn't have before that changes everything. And that guy's innocent and actually she did it all based on the right eyewitness account or the right evidence being added to the equation. And so from the secular perspective, what they've tried to do with evolution millions of years is to explain the evidence from a naturalistic, atheistic, materialistic worldview. That's why the conclusions are so different from the biblical ones and so wrong. The Bible is clear. God supernaturally created this world by the power of his word. And that's not a problem for the biblical God. He is God. He can raise the dead with a mere word. He can walk on water. He can turn water into wine instantaneously because he is God. And so the text is clear.
1: Yeah. And, and Rocky, you know, I was thinking about some of the Old Testament passages that are clearly poetical, like Song of Solomon or, or mm-hmm. parts of Proverbs <laughs> yeah. and Ecclesiastes. Um, now, in comparative uh, language, there, there's a there's a part of speech called a simile, uh, the word like or as. In Song of Solomon, you know, it'll say, my, my love's neck is like an ivory tower. Her lips are like a thread of scarlet. Or it'll say, you know, the earth reels to and fro as a drunken man. I mean, th- those are comparative, uh, poetic, allegorical language. But uh, Brian, yeah. I'm with you. I mean, when you read the, the historical narratives of uh, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, you don't, you don't find any similes, you know, like or as or uh, as if. No, it's like the language does not allow for um, poeticizing this, does it?
2: It really doesn't, and it's interesting. There's a Hebrew scholar not too long ago who actually looked at the Hebrew verbs used in the book of Genesis and compared that with Hebrew verbs used over in political books and other places, and so he took known political accounts and the Hebrew verbiage used there. Compared that to other Old Testament accounts that are clearly historical, and the Hebrew verbs used in those, and got some trends, and then he applied those trends to the book of Genesis. And what he found is, based on the Hebrew verbs used, Genesis is the most historical narrative book in the entire Old Testament. And then, like, for the days of creation, people will often say, well, can't the days be long periods of time? And, of course, the word day has multiple meanings. It can, based on context, but the word day can mean a regular 24-hour day. And it's interesting, when you look in the Bible in the Old Testament, when does the word day mean a regular 24-hour day? Well, anytime it's accompanied by a number, if it says on the first day or during the second day, anytime you see evening and morning in a sentence, with or without the word day, always a 24-hour day. Anytime you see night with day, always a 24-hour day. If you look in the creation week, what do you see with the context around the word day? It's evening, morning, the first day. There was evening and morning the second day. There was evening and morning the third day. It's literally contextual overkill to emphasize these days in Genesis are regular 24-hour days, similar to like we experience right now. And the author is mm. going to great lengths. Of course, the ultimate author is God to let us know these are regular days. And then Exodus 2011. 11. Four and six days, the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And then he rested on the seventh day. And that's the basis for a seven-day week. Praise God, he did not work for six million years and rest for a million years. We're stuck on Tuesday. We're stuck for a million years. You never rest? No. Six days, rest on the seventh day because it's a regular 24-hour days. And so the text really is clear. And again, biblical authors affirm that. The question is, do we trust the text or do we trust man's interpretations of present-day observations? And when you look at the idea of evolution millions of years, what it really is, it's people rejecting biblical truth so they're not neutral interpreting present day observations through a secular naturalistic lens to so try to make a guess to get a different answer than what the Bible says, because ultimately they, they don't want God's word to be true. Because if God's yeah. word is right about the past, it's right about the present and the future. And sinful man doesn't like that. So what happens? Romans 1, suppress the truth and unrighteousness, which is what evolution ultimately really is.
1: Mm, Wow. Rocco, thanks so much for a great, great question. And by the way, folks, if you have a a Bible question or a question about how to defend what you believe, tonight is the night. Uh, The number is 719-619-2341. Call in tonight on Truth and Liberty. Uh, We're going to go to South Carolina. Linda in South Carolina, thanks for holding. You're the next caller on this edition of Truth and Liberty.
3: Thank you, Alex and Brian. This is a great conversation. I'm learning quite a bit. And Brian, I'm one of those um, North Carolina Davidson County girls, and I taught at a public (laughs) high school just north of Thomasville.
2: Oh, look at that. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome.
3: And I had the privilege of two years teaching a course in that public high school called The Bible as Literature, and it was fabulous. (laughs) Um, Very
1: good. That is wonderful, Linda.
3: Uh, I, I loved it. God blessed me with the ability to do that and the privilege of doing that. Uh, my question is, I have never read the Bible in chronological order. Why should I? What's the advantage of reading it that way?
1: Great, Hello. great question. And, and I know there are some like chronological study Bibles, but um, what about it, uh, Brian? It, it does relate to the history of Israel, doesn't it, uh, the chron- oh. chronology of it?
2: No, absolutely. And actually, just to truth be known, I read through the Bible typically once per year, and I actually use an app on my phone that takes me through the Bible chronologically every year just to give me that perspective. It's really helpful because it puts it in its proper timeline. The Bible is organized the way it is on purpose. God ordained it, so we're not saying it needs to be reorganized, but it can be helpful when you go through it chronologically to see all the events of biblical history occur in their proper place, and it helps you kind of put all the dots together. Uh, I got to teach Bible history in a public school for 13 years, taught Old Testament, then New Testament. I taught through the Old Testament chronologically, and what I really found was it helped my students so much, even those who claim to grow up in a Christian home for most of their lives, helped them understand the Bible, because typically, often when you go to church, what do you get? You get so-called Bible stories. You read about Daniel in the lion's den. You read about Moses parting the Red Sea. You read about Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, Paul's missionary journeys. You kind of jump around back and forth. And for so many Christians, they've never actually been given the tools to understand the actual timeline in its proper order. So to many, the Bible seems like a jumbled mess of stories. that don't actually go together in any real sense. But when you go through the Bible chronologically and you see where all the events and all the people actually fit, you'll see it makes sense. And there's a clear flow of history. And there's actually this clear point, the entire Bible is pointing to Christ. So the Old Testament is pointing to the Messiah to come, pointing to Christ, the whole New Testament. You have his life and then how to live like him. He's coming back one day. It's all about Christ. And that meta-narrative is so clear when you go through the Bible chronologically. And as you were saying, Alex, we start with creation and then the corruption. God's going to bring a messiah. First promise back in Genesis 3:15. He raises up a nation, Israel, from that nation. He brings the Messiah at the perfect time. And so that history is all leading to really what is the consummation, which is Christ and then his return. And so yeah when you read it chronologically it makes the whole thing make sense and that can be such a helpful tool for anyone believer or non-believer
1: you know linda there's a book that i got a couple of years ago that i highly recommend and it's called the bible timeline and it's a pretty large books probably 14 or 16 inches but it's got a chart you lay out and it shows not only the chronological history of the bible but what else was going on in the world during this time, you know, uh, Egypt and the Sumerian nations as God raised up Israel. The the Mm, Bible timeline, super easy to find online, and that's very helpful as well. Now, folks, we've got more callers. The number is 719-619-2341. Truth and Liberty with our guest, Brian Osborne. Creation, evolution, your questions. More after this break. Don't go away.
3: You were created with a purpose. Written in the heart of God, long before you were born, he is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience his unconditional love to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer.
0: Have you been praying about how to make your business your mission field? GospelTruth.TV Business features leadership and financial stewardship training from industry experts. Learn the next steps to building wealth and using it to grow God's kingdom. Tune in Saturdays to GospelTruth.TV Business and watch anytime with GospelTruth.TV Premium. Visit Gospel Truth TV today for biblical teaching you can trust.
1: Welcome back to Truth and Liberty. Alex McFarland here. Hey, by the way, you know, we just had the big Truth and Liberty Conference a couple of weeks ago, and we had people from all over the country. And listen to this, folks. Wednesday night, uh, two nights ago, I was at Thomas Road Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. It was great, there were hundreds of people there. And I'm walking through this big venue, and people came up to me and they said, We're here because we watch you on Truth and Liberty. It was Mm -hmm. Sam and Linda and others, and so I just want to say thanks more and more as I travel. I'm meeting people that watch the show. Now, two things I want to say. One, if you go to my website, which is alexmcfarland.com, my travel schedule is on there, and I'll be this weekend, Sunday morning, Sunday night through Tuesday night, I'll be at Stuttgart, Arkansas. Now, that's not far from Little Rock. It's not far from Memphis, Tennessee. And I'll be doing an evangelistic event down there. And you can go to my website a week from this Sunday. I'll be in Dillon, South Carolina. Now, everywhere I go, I preach biblical worldview, apologetics, the very same kind of content that Brian Osborne and I are talking about tonight, plus, plus the gospel. Everywhere we go, we're seeing people get saved. And so as I meet Mm -hmm. the Truth and Liberty audience all over America, that's very encouraging. Final thing before we go back to the phones, folks, think about Truth and Liberty in your giving. Do you know the conferences, the broadcasts, the content that we promote, publishing, travel, all these things are great. The gospel is free. But it takes money to deliver that free message so if you would go to truthandliberty.net donate if you give a recurring gift of at least five dollars a month you're a truth and liberty partner and you can know confidently that what you invest in this is standing up for your freedom, standing up for the, the biblical worldview in our culture. God will use it. God is using it. And we sincerely thank each and every one of you that are supporters. Please, folks, pray and consider supporting Truth and Liberty today. And on behalf of Andrew Womack and Richard and myself and everybody involved, please know that we're grateful. Well, the number for calls is seven one nine six. 192341. We're going to continue with Stacy in Texas. Stacy, am I correct? You're you're a Keras grad, right?
4: Yes, I am. I graduated in May from Keras DFW, and the word of God truly changed my life, and I can't recommend it enough.
1: Amen. Hey, I got to ask you did you do a third year program?
4: I did not. I wish they brought third year back to the stateside schools, but. Maybe one day, but for now, my life is in Texas.
1: Well, amen. So uh, we're going to get to Brian, but I got to ask you because I'm so enthused, I am so excited. Uh, how did you like Karis? The content you learned.
4: Karis was life-changing for me. Um, you get the Word of God sown in your heart by all the amazing instructors that have been walking with the Lord for 40-plus years. I am a changed woman, and I'm on fire for God. I go out sharing my faith everywhere I go. And, um, awesome. yeah, Mark 4, a parable of the sower, you get that Word in you. It will change you. It is the key. And, um I am blessed beyond measure, and I can't recommend it enough for all you people out there like me who couldn't get to Colorado. There are stateside schools all over the country with amazing directors, and you're going to get the same teaching. You'll go on a mission trip. I went to Belize, and um, yeah, it's amazing. Go to Karis.
1: It will change your life. Exactly. I'm so excited about what the Lord is doing in the lives of thousands and thousands of people in America at the Karis, the main campus in Colorado and around the world, to get people into the Word of God. And uh, Brian, you would appreciate this because I I have the privilege of teaching apologetics and biblical worldview, and I even teach speech and debate. But I want to say Mm -hmm. how much I appreciate Andrew Womack, founder of Karis Bible College, and all the professors, and my, my dear friends like Mike and Carrie Pickett that are helping grow this school, but we believe what the Bible says about creation. We believe uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We believe all of the Word of God, obviously, Amen. but when, when the Bible says God created in six days and rested on the seventh, we believe that because we know God's Word is true. But uh, Stacy, blessings to you down there in Texas. W- what is your question tonight for uh, Brian Osborne and myself?
4: Awesome. So my question to you is on the flat Earth theory. I've been I've watched a few documentaries that are biblical in nature, and it talks about how the Earth has foundations and. Is there any basis to this? You know, I had so many questions after watching these documentaries where maybe space is all a lie. Maybe them telling us about the earth and the globe is a lie. And um, the Bible seems to talk about how the foundations of the earth and the um, firmament and all this. So what is your guys' view with the earth's shape based on the Bible and what you truly believe? Because I have Major questions, and it's been very enlightening to me.
1: Hmm. Brian, I'm going to let you respond first, but as you respond, sure. bring in Isaiah 40:22, if you would.
2: Okay, and remind me the exact nature of the verse, the actual, the, the the, word, the actual wording. The the Lord on sits on the circle on of the, the earth. Circle, yeah, yeah, on the circle of the earth. So here's, yeah, great question, Stacy, and. It's not uncommon, by the way, the flat Earth ideology has gained a lot of traction recently in the last few years, actually so much so that our astronomer, Dr. Danny Faulkner, has engaged the issue really thoroughly. written a book about it, has actually gone to multiple flat Earth conferences to engage people with this idea, with sincerity, to really uh, hear what they're thinking and to share truth with them. He's got a real heart. and He's really just a great guy and a really smart guy. He does a great job. His book is called Falling Flat. You can go to our website and find that falling flat, Dr. Danny Faulkner. There are wow. videos on our website as well. AnswersInGenesis.org. Again, that's AnswersInGenesis.org. You can go there. There's a show there also we have available on our website or AnswersTV, which is called Flatline. That's with Dr. Mm-hmm. Danny Faulkner and our actually our rocket engineer, a rocket scientist, rocket Rob Webb, we call him, Rob Webb. Huh. And so he he worked with NASA for a while as an engineer, and now he works with us and uh, does a fantastic job, him and both, uh, Denny Faulkner. In short, I'll give you the short answer on this because there's so many rabbit holes you could fall down into. What the Flat Earth ideas typically appear to, or appeal to, rather, in the Bible, are poetical passages that aren't referring to anything literal. So the foundations of the earth, the earth will not be moved. The four corners of the earth, when you go to the biblical references for those, they're typically poetical references or something in apocalyptic type language. And they're meant to simply make the point that the earth is unmovable. If I say Alex is like a stone pillar, he's like a rock. Well, I'm not saying that Alex is literally a rock. I'm saying that he will not be moved. He is firm in his position. He is rooted where he is at. And that's really the point of those particular passages. And then you get verses like Isaiah 40, 22, to talk about them sitting upon a circle of the earth. Now, to be fair, though, flat earthers would say, ah, but it doesn't say sphere. It says circle. And then of the modern flat earth movement says, well, the earth is circle with a dome on top, kind of like a snow globe type of look, and then it goes around that way. Uh, and then what you'll find, especially a lot of YouTube videos, will be people. And here's the general trend. I'm not trying to poke fun or be derogatory, really not. But typically what they do is they take particular, they look at particular observations that superficially confirm the idea they're wanting to be true. And then they give it that interpretation, whereas really they're not truly understanding what's actually happening with that observation scientifically. And what Dr. Danny Faulkner does as an astronomer, he does it so well in his book and on his videos. He's got multiple videos on this is to show you no, know, this is what's actually happening scientifically. This explains the observation, and really it shows how all those observations rightly understood in a powerful way confirm a spherical Earth. Not only that, but as you talk about this issue of a flat Earth, there are many... Really good, strong believers who have been astronauts. We've had a couple of them speak at our conferences. Uh, I had a picture of one just this last conference. Great guy, sharp guy. He's literally been in space. He loves Jesus with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. You can just see it just oozes off of him, which is so wonderful. And he showed us tons of videos that he took while he was in space mm-hmm. of the earth all right, yeah. of the things around him. And it's a spherical earth, and there's not a plot. This is a real thing, and it actually makes sense within the biblical worldview. And to say that they're lying is to then say, well, a fellow brother in Christ is lying for whatever reason. That's slanderous if we have really no foundation for it. And there's so many of those guys and women who have done that, who are believers who say, no, it's real. This is a sphere. And real science confirms that. And I'd also... As, you know, flat earther in a real sense, what do you think? Why would that be a conspiracy? What would the sect of the devil be hoping to achieve by convincing people the earth is flat? I mean, ultimately, really. Um, now, they would argue, well, because they think the Bible teaches a flat earth, but I would say those passages they're referring to aren't teaching a flat earth at all. They're really not. Yeah. And by the way, the flat earth idea doesn't originate with Christian thinkers at its origin. And so, not at all at the reasons, so many more, I would say, yeah, no to the flat earth. But there's some great resources. Again, Dr. Danny Faulkner, Flatlined, uh, the book Falling Flat by him. Go check it out on our website. Great resource.
1: And and Stacey, let me just say this. Sometimes atheists will bait people, B-A-I-T, that uh, sometimes atheists will put stuff out there to try to, uh, troll for Christians to latch onto it. I mean, for years and years and years, sure. there was this idea that the company Procter & Gamble, their, their corporate logo was demonic. And it, it never was. It wasn't like that. And yet atheists would post that stuff online to make people think that, you know, okay, Christians will latch onto this. There was an idea that um, national public uh, television Um, the public broadcasting was going to outlaw any Christian television. And I was talking to someone in Washington who said that they were inundated by Christians calling to say you can't make Christian television illegal. Well, that was never in danger of happening. Mm -hmm. And um, I debated the president of American Atheist probably a dozen times and kind of um, smugly he would snicker and say that you know they can throw any trial balloon out there, and very often well-meaning Christians will will latch onto it. Um, and and I suspect not all, but some of the flat Earth videos are like that. But but Brian, a couple of things I was going to think about. Um, do yeah. you remember Brian? Uh, five, six, seven years ago, there was a commercial of some guys that were way up in space and in like these these um flying suits jumped. I don't know if they were on the International Mm. Space Station. They might have been, but they jumped, and in these flight suits fell all the way to Earth, like 13 miles down. Did you ever see that that commercial?
2: I think so. Was that for Red Bull or one of those particular companies, like energy energy drink companies, I think,
1: maybe? It it was. Well, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, Uh, to speak on the 4th of July in the summer of 2021, okay? And a guy came up to me. He was a Christian. I've got his business card, and he was totally legit. He was the guy that two guys did it. They were 13 miles up in space, (laughs) and and they, for this energy drink, they jumped in a flight (laughs) suit. And he had video, and he showed me much, much more video than was in that commercial. But here's my point you clearly can see that the earth is is a spherical orb. Mm -hmm. One last thing, um, on a fishing trip 20 years ago, I was 100 miles out to sea. We we put out from a North Carolina beach. We went 100 miles out into the ocean. Two things. For one, you can see the curvature of the earth. Even out there in the ocean, I mean, clearly it's a pretty... Mm -hmm pronounced curve. The other thing is, whenever we would see like a boat go beyond the point of the horizon, they would disappear. And right. they would disappear because, you know, uh, the, the field of vision is a straight line. But when it goes beyond the, the circle of the earth, you know, they don't disappear, but they're no longer in view. And that's because the earth and even the waters under the, the pull of gravity, um, it's, it's round, isn't it? Not flat, but round, isn't it, Brian?
2: And you reminded me too, when you were saying that my wife just surprised me with a cruise for our 25th anniversary. And so we went on a cruise ship and had a, had a wonderful time. And we, were, we saw many ships from our ship that they were sailing away from us. And that very phenomenon, they gradually descend and disappear out of field of view because of the curvature of the earth. And then he talks about that in his books and his resources. And that's, yeah, it's a great confirmation of that, the real spherical nature of the earth. And and I would say this to Stacy and any others, it's not a challenge to anyone's intellect. These can be really solid, really legitimate questions. There's some yeah. really good answers. Be sure you find those answers. And. Root our thinking in the right understanding of God's Word. You read the Bible in context. And so when you read a poetical passage, you read it within that poetical sense. Don't try to put a literal meaning on something that's clearly poetical. And, of course, don't take history as poetry either. You read the text in its context.
1: Well, biblical worldview is certainly rewarding. It's good, clean fun. (laughs) Elizabeth (laughs) in Missouri. Elizabeth, thanks for holding. And you are on Truth and Liberty. Welcome. Okay.
3: Yes, yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. I was wondering um, how would gravity be affected if flat Earth was um, was true.
2: Mm. Great, it's question. a great question. Yeah, so I would say this: the I'm not an astronomer, and I'm, I'm not a physics professor either, but. I can say off the cuff, if you change the general structure of the earth, understanding what we know about our solar system, which is the orbits of the earth or the planets around the sun and the way that works within momentum and then the mass of the planets in their rotation with that orbit, all those factors come together. God is an amazing engineer to have these things that spin in just the right way, with just the right mass to create the gravity we need to live and function and not be squashed and not float away. It's like God designed it this way it really is amazing. And yeah. I know Dr. Danny Faulkner, again, going back to him, because he is the expert on this. He'd have some detailed answers on that. But, yes, there would be some very big concerns regarding gravity and how it would function or not function if you change the general nature and structure of the planet. It would be a really big yeah. deal.
1: It would. And, and, Elizabeth, you know, and, again, I'm not a physicist nor an astronomer either, uh, but there's this wonderful thing called gravity. That you know every object has mass and everything is pulled toward the center of the Earth and it's constant all around the globe and so um, well for one thing uh, in philosophy let me throw this out here folks. Um, to ask this, it's fun. You know, it's, it's fun to, to theorize and ask hypothetical questions, but very properly, and we teach this in my critical thinking classes at Keras, this is what's called a counterfactual. Uh, the, the, the world that we know of is the real world, and gravity operates, and it is a bit, bit of a mystery for physicists why do things pull to the center? If I drop the pin, it doesn't float. And the, the rate of things falling, uh, Brian, does my memory serve me? Is it 32 feet per second? Um, uh, but it sounds about
2: right. But yeah, it, my memory yeah, tells on that as well.
1: Yeah, uh, it's constant. And by the way, the moon factors into this, the, tide, um, the, the tidal uh, cycles. You know, when it's low tide, in one place, it's high tide somewhere else, and vice versa. Um, we, we can think about what might or might not be, but all of that is speculative. It's counterfactual. And the Earth that we have, both visually and operationally, um, it, it's spherical. Uh, and this is a fun topic to talk about. One other thing, and we've got a caller and we're going to go, and then I've got a question for Brian as well. But uh, Elizabeth, thank you. And I would say this to all viewers: tell your friends about Truth and Liberty. Um, share with those that you know and your maybe your social media friends. Let people know about Truth and Liberty five nights a week, live. We have got world-class content, whether it's The Bible, God's Word, salvation, the culture, government, and like tonight, cosmology. We're talking about a biblical view of the world and how it operates. Tell people about this. And by the way, we've got time for a couple of more questions. 719-619-2341. AJ. AJ is a subscriber. He's in Colorado. Thank you, my friend, for participating. Thank you for being a supporter, and we welcome you, A.J. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Alex and Brian. It's good to hear from you guys. Yeah. You guys are doing great today. Bless you. What uh, you got, I was A.J.? Uh, since they want us to trust
3: the science, can we use carbon dating to actually determine the age of the Earth, or is that
1: a lot of nonsense? So Brian, so, yeah. yeah, what's your, what's yeah, sorry, your read on carbon dating?
2: So any of the radiometric dating methods are all based on assumptions about the past and present-day observations and interpretations within those assumptions. And so there are different variations of carbon-14 dating, whether you're talking about carbon-14 in particular, or I should say radiometric dating, like uranium, lead, or benzene, strontium, or potassium, argon. What they all seek to do is to measure the rate of decay of a particular element. For example, uh, some types of uranium will change into lead. We measure how fast that change occurs, called the rate of decay. And then they look inside of a rock sample and measure the amount of changed element from one element to the other, multiply the amount of changed element by the rate of decay to make a guess about the age of the rock they're looking at. That's the big picture view. But I understand when they do that, they're assuming that the rate of decay has always been consistent. They're assuming they know the original amounts of elements in the rock sample they're looking at, and they're assuming no contamination over a long period of time in their particular worldview. All things they can't know for sure just things they have to assume within their particular worldview perspective. And really, the long and short of it is, if you start with the wrong assumptions, you'll get the wrong conclusions. And so within the biblical worldview, we understand that God supernaturally spoke the world into existence. Uh, That would affect the amount of initial elements in rock samples. Uh, The rate of decay could have been affected by creation week, during the flood. Uh, especially with those cataclysmic processes taking place during the flow will affect the rate of decay most likely, tons of contamination with all the water sediments covering the earth, moving in catastrophic ways. And so you're going to affect all those things. And so it's going to give the secularists really wrong conclusions because they're starting with a naturalistic framework interpreting these events through that naturalistic worldview and getting the wrong conclusions. So in short, that's a long way to say this, but in short, we'd say, no, their conclusions will be wrong because their assumptions are wrong. That being said, carbon-14 in particular is actually a great confirmation of a young Earth, if I can do this just super quick. So Mm -hmm. carbon-14 is unstable. It'll change it to nitrogen-14 pretty quickly by radiometric standards. And basically, here's what happens. Carbon-14 forms in our atmosphere. It gets absorbed by plants. Animals eat plants. We eat animals and plants, so all these things have some carbon-14 inside of them. And remember, the carbon-14 is unstable. But actually, everyone listening right now has some carbon-14 inside of them. That means all of them are slightly unstable, all right? Huh. But <laughs> but some when a creature dies, others. some more than others, blame the carbon-14. Uh, but when a creature dies, the carbon-14 it does have starts to decay to nitrogen-14. And it decays so quickly that within 100,000 years after the creature's death, there should be no detectable carbon-14, none. So this is a no. good test. What do we find in organic remnants all the way through the rock record? We find tons of carbon-14 still inside all those organic remnants. We find carbon-14 in all the major coal seams, carbon-14 in dinosaur bones literally all the time, carbon-14 in diamonds, which really blows a secular's mind. And so that's great confirmation. Those things are at most just thousands of years old, no way millions. And so it's a great confirmation, the biblical worldview. Now, the cyclists Brian. will try to use a rescuing device, but that's a great confirmation.
1: Now, I've heard this, and tell me if this is still accepted uh, science, uh, but carbon-14 dating is really only accurate to about 50,000 years. Have you? What's the, the belief in that yes. assertion?
2: Well, not yet. Yes. And so some would say it's accurate up to roughly 50,000 based on the lifespan or to the decay rate of carbon 14. But as far as actually being accurate for historical reasons and dating particular things, we're probably talking a thousand or two thousand years.
1: Do you know what? I was watching um, uh, NPR, National Public. Well, it was not National Public Radio. It was uh, uh, PBS, P- Public Broadcasting, PBS. Yeah. I was watching a show, and it was all about dinosaurs. And it really was about creation and teaching intelligent design in public schools, Brian. And on PBS, there was an evolutionist. He was talking a mile a minute. And he held up some fossil, and he said, this has been carbon-14 dated to 2 million years old. And he said, we know the young earth can't be true because... And and I watched the show and watched it again. And look, he knew that wasn't right. Because carbon-14, you can't use that dating method to what might be assumed to be millions of years. And yet, it's on public television. And most of the viewing public is none the wiser.
2: That's right. And either he is purposely lying or just scientifically ignorant of carbon-14. Either case, it's it's not good for him, not a good look for a secular interpretation, for sure. And and I would tell AJ, Rocco from earlier, and then even just all the people we talked to, Linda, Lori, Frank, I guess your name's written down, try to remember them, but there are tons of resources. These questions we're trying to answer very, very quickly. Be sure to go to our website, uh, answersingenesis.org. And I know, Alex, I'm sure you get re- resources as well to help with this. But the website has so many articles to dive deep into what about evolution, natural selection and mutations. So are they real? Yes, mm-hmm. do they cause macroevolution? No, there's a difference there. What about who did King Mary? Dinosaurs in the Bible, rock layers and fossils, distant starlight. we got great answers to all those things. Easily available at answersingenesis.org. My book on quick answers to tough questions gives you, gives you very short, concise answers. We've got to be so short and concise here, but the answers are there. Go to the website, go to resources, be equipped, and be able to share these to one degree or another with those around you with the hopes of defending the faith to proclaim the gospel.
1: Amen. Susie in Colorado, a Karis Bible College student. Susie, thanks for holding. You'll probably be the last call we can have time for tonight, but we thank you for, for waiting. Thank you. Yes, what you got?
3: Oh, are we on the show now?
1: We're on. Welcome, (laughs) Susie. Oh, okay. Oh, well, it's it's not what I'm seeing on TV,
3: so I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to um, ask about uh, the, the potential of God creating the stars in advance to have their rotations line up with the day that he knew that Jesus would be born so that they could make the Bethlehem star as seen mm-hmm. on uh, YouTube.
1: So okay. So, so when God spoke the, the universe into existence and created the stars in the heaven, you know, the, the, the greater light to light the day, the lesser lights to light the night, Brian, what do you think? Did God know that one of those stars would one day be purposed to guide the, the magi to Jesus, the star of Bethlehem, and the, the shepherds? Or what was it something else that was the star of Bethlehem?
2: Well, Susie, you're getting me ready for Christmas. I'm getting excited for Christmas now thinking about this particular question. And we have Amen. a whole program, I know, right, dedicated to this particular question. What was the star of Bethlehem? Because it's a very good question. and something we should think about. Is it possible that God and a sovereign could orchestrate something like that? Of course he could. He's God. You know, it would not be an issue for him. It would not only not be hard, it would be effortless for God because he's all powerful. But what we look at, when you look at the text and you look at the details of the text and how the star guided the wise men, bear in mind the wise men got to Jesus probably when He's roughly about two years old. There's also mm-hmm. a different time frame there from the actual birth to when the wise men actually get there and how the star actually guides them. Based on the scriptural narrative of how the star moved, how it guided them, the direction it went, the angle they're coming from, it would seem to be that the best explanation would be the star was a supernatural event, not a mm. physical phenomenon that God preordained to appear at a particular time. Just based on the angle of the star, where it's at, how it's moving, how it's guiding them, resting over uh, the place for leading the wise men to get to that particular spot. And so we have a great uh video program on that. We show here at the Creation Museum during Christmas called the Star of Bethlehem. It's in our over in our one of our theaters. You can go watch it there. It's really well done. And I encourage people to go check that out. You can see it online as well. And there should be articles on our website as well at answersandgenesis.org to give a more detailed answer on that. But Again, in short, probably a supernatural phenomenon, and again, not a problem for the biblical God, because He's God.
1: Sure, and, and let's remember, God can do anything that is in harmony with His nature, righteous holy god can do anything that is in harmony with his word and god can do anything that is logically meaningful you know uh, brian i've been at universities to do q a and somebody will smartly ask you well if if you say god can do anything could god make a a four-sided triangle and i said well i don't say god can do anything i'm not saying god could cause himself to go out of existence." I'm not saying God would betray His Word. In fact, Psalm 132, verse 8, folks, we're out of time almost, but listen to this wonderful verse, Psalm 132, 8. God says, My Word have I exalted above my name. So God will never betray His Word. Susie, wonderful question. All the great yep. callers. Hey, I want to thank the crew at Truth and Liberty. They are wonderful. They're phenomenal. And Brian Osborne of Answers in Genesis, thanks for being with us. Um, g- give your website one more time or, or the website for AIG.
2: Absolutely. It's been a pri- privilege. Thanks for having me on the show. It is answersingenesis.org. That's answers in I N Go there. You can find my book, Quick Answers to Tough Questions, many other great books, other resources, lots of articles, web and videos free on the website as well.
1: Well, to Ken Ham and Mark Loy and Terry Mortensen and Andrew Snelling and all of our beloved colleagues at AIG, give our best. Uh, Folks, Alex McFarland here. You've been watching Truth and Liberty. We're going to be back Monday with another great week of this content. In, In the meantime, stay bold, stay strong, be in God's Word, be in church on Sunday, and realize your labor in the Lord is not in vain. May God bless you.